Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. For 45 years, students across America have been protected from discrimination by Title IX of the United States Education Amendments of 1972. Among the protections, Title IX has ensured that female students have the same access to academics and athletics as male students. Title IX also provides an outline for colleges and universities to develop their policies dealing with sexual assault against and by students. Last week, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos announced a review of Title IX policies regarding sexual assault, specifically reevaluating the rights of the accused. Joining us to discuss the history of Title Nine, the protections it offers, and its ability to protect students in the future are Dr. Amenta Hinton of Elizabethtown's College of Equity and Title Nine. Dr. Hinton, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Also joining us is Donna Greco, Policy Director with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Ms. Greco, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. If you have a question or a comment, I'd like to join our conversation. Our phone number is 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Dr. Hinton, let's provide some background here. How does Title IX relate to sexual assault on campuses? Right. Well, thanks for that question, but but I want to outline a couple of things first. Um, Title IX is so much more than just sexual assault, as you are aware. But, you know, it also um, it generally and broadly prohibits sex discrimination, essentially. So, uh, and I also need to say that it, it, it applies to men as well as women. So we need to make sure that your listeners understand that piece. Um, it also includes things like pregnant and parenting and some other issues that many people really don't pay as much attention to. Um, it is a very broadly um, applied uh, law, and in many ways, it is a very good thing for our college campuses and our K-12 through institutions. In terms of sexual assault and sexual misconduct, um, our Dear Colleague letter, I think, is what most people are, are focusing on, the 2011 Dear Colleague letter. It was that came during the Obama administration, it, it yes. It did indeed. It did indeed. And it, it, it provided a set of guidelines to say, uh, treat sexual misconduct as an act of discrimination. And it also then provided the how-to. And it gave us some very strict guidance in terms of what types of things we should be looking at. And I think that that is maybe one of the challenges that our schools and our colleges are grappling with at this point, and one of the things that the Secretary is talking about. All right, so let's talk about those changes as a result of the Dear Colleague letter. First of all, explain why it is referred to as the Dear Colleague letter, and what are some of those changes? Well. What, some of the things that I think the secretary is looking at, um, I don't know, it's just kind of up for grabs. If you talk to uh, people in the industry, they are saying many, many things that she may, she and her team are looking at rolling back. But uh, it, it's called Dear Colleague because that's the way it was addressed to all of us. It it, it was, um, and, and I like to make a joke about this in, in trainings, um, the Department of Education wrote to us all and said to colleges and, and, and to K-12 through institutions. And it started by saying, dear colleague. How sweet is that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but then it began to tell us about all of the things that we needed to now be responsible for. Like what? Well, um, it, it brought home some of the um, issues of having Title IX coordinators. Um, it talked about making certain that you had policies uh, that were um, accessible to your student body, your faculty, and your staff. Um, it talked about uh, due process, 
Right. Um, it also mentioned interim measures. There are a great many things that we are now that, that we knew to do. But it's it highlighted those moments for us. Mm-hmm. All right, so, uh, uh, Ms. Greco, let me uh, turn to you now. And I, I may be jumping ahead a little bit because I'm going to go back. But as Dr. Hinton mentioned, uh, many people have described what uh, Secretary DeVos said last week as a rollback of some of these rules, some of these policies. How does the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape see it? Thank you for that question. Um, as Dr. Hinton said that, you know, Title IX has been in existence since 1972. Campus sexual violence has happened for a very long time. But in 2011, with that Dear Colleague letter, sexual assault victims received, and our communities and parents of sexual assault victims received a very strong message from our federal government um, that not only is sexual assault a traumatic event, it's actually a civil rights issue that can undermine a person's access to equal education and educational activities and programming, and that as college campuses under Title IX, we need to do everything in our power to prevent sexual violence from happening in the first place and if it does happen, to make sure that campuses are fully equipped to address that that issue in a timely, fair, and, and prompt and impartial manner. Um, and with that, the guidance really outlined a set of um, best practices and um, elements to have in place on, on any college campus that receives federal funds. Um, so campuses should be trained, they should be adequately trained to really address instances of sexual violence, to investigate those, to prevent those from happening. Um, but really, I think that in this conversation that we're having right now nationally and certainly in Pennsylvania, I think we need to remind ourselves that Title IX and the guidance that flowed out of um, the Department of Education in 2011 and since 2011 really is about um, equity. It's about gender equity, and as Dr. Hinton said, it, that helps us all. That helps people across gender identities, male, female, trans students. Um, it helps parents when they're sending their kids away to school with some assurance that the schools are ready to prevent this. They're ready to intervene and to help students that are impacted by this in a way that, again, is um, operating from from this equitable place and making sure that everyone involved has the adequate training to do their jobs well. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But getting back to my original question, there have been, and I will say many people across the country in reaction to this, who see it as a rollback of those rules. Do you? Yes, I think it is dangerous to to say that the entire system is broken. I think that some of the remarks from Secretary DeVos last week um, have a lot of us, you know, at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and our network of rape crisis centers very concerned. Um, there is fear that in rolling back this guidance that we will go backwards and we will minimize the experiences of victims of sexual violence, that the issue of sexual violence will not remain elevated as a civil rights issue, um, that our great strategy and prevention will be rolled back. Um, student activists and campus administrators and campus uh, faculty members and staff have really embraced this to some degree and have sort of taken ownership. I think even in Pennsylvania, seeing um, the It's On Us Pennsylvania campaign out of the governor's office, that there is momentum behind this effort. Um, so there's great fear that we will go backwards, not only in serving victims of sexual violence, but also losing our footing with the good prevention work that we've been really trying to put in place across rape crisis centers in collaboration with with campuses throughout Pennsylvania. You use the word minimalize. What do you mean? How what how is what Secretary DeVos said last week minimalizing uh, some of, uh, of 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 sexual assault accusations? Sure. I think if we compare her remarks to the spirit of Title IX which was about gender equity and civil rights, and we compare her remarks to the Dear Colleague letter of 2011, um, sexual assault victims received a very strong message that we hear you, that we know sexual violence on college campuses is a problem that needs to be prioritized, and that it gets in the way of your educational rights under Title IX. And so now to say that we're going to sort of throw that all out or rescind that or dilute that or dilute the definition of, of what sexual violence is or only consider certain certain forms of sexual violence, it, it, 
puts us in a dangerous place, in a fearful place for sexual assault victims who have felt heard in some ways in an unprecedented way in that 2011 context of the guidance. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that the Obama administration implemented this and sent that Dear Colleague letter was because uh, there was a sense that... uh, and maybe even evidence that uh, many campuses, many colleges, many universities across the, the country were not taking sexual assault accusations seriously, uh, were, I don't know whether I'd say covering them up or minimalizing, I'll use that word, uh, those accusations because, well, for a number of different reasons. But one was they didn't want crime statistics, they didn't want their, their campuses crime statistics to look bad. So, you know, that was one of the reasons for this in the first place. In fact, Dr. Hinton, Etown was one of the colleges that was listed by the feds as mm-hmm. ha- having in the past that maybe uh, did not report as many as what they should have. Right. So what have the universities, what have the colleges done other than this training to make sure that these accusations are taken seriously and that uh, the, the the person who is making the accusations is treated well and fair mm-hmm. um, thanks that's a very good question um, it, colleges my colleagues um, and and K through 12 administrators are doing everything that they can to right the ship um, <clears throat> I, I've always said that colleges and educational institutions are more a microcosm of larger society. So what's going on in larger society is essentially what you're going to see on your college campus. Therefore, having said that, so much of um, the ways in which we address sexual misconduct these days is a bit more aggressive in terms of um, having uh, due process for both complainant and respondent. Looking at both as students, making certain that their rights are protected, um, providing kind of what I call wraparound care. So there are so many ways, reaching out to organizations like my colleagues here, um, making certain that we are well-resourced, that our staff are trained, that people in my position stay in training. I mean, there is rarely a month that comes by that I'm not at some conference or in front of some expert in the field to um, provide me with a level of top-up training. So colleges are doing a much, much, much better job, and so are K-12 through institutions. But to my colleague's point about the civil rights piece and the fear of it being rolled back, I, I too have a little bit of that anxiety, but um, I think if we really look at American um, uh, education and the way things have gone over the centuries, we always have these moments of self-correction. We always have these moments of, I mean, if we even go to the Civil War and then we do uh, the Civil Rights Act and how that was rolled back and then how it was addressed with black codes and how it was addressed with, you know, but eventually we started getting it, it started getting better. Right. And I think that kind of is where we may be right now. Um, I'm a bit more hopeful. I think that um, there are going to be conversations. And my hope is that um, we we just get it better. There are some moments, to be sure, in the 2011 Dear Colleague letter that all of us would like to kind of, you know, just kind of tweak a little. I'm hoping that 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 this, what we're going through now, presents us with those opportunities, especially um, as a result of the commenting uh, session. And I'm hoping that the secretary takes those comments very seriously. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I want to make sure that uh, everyone knows that what the administration is doing right now is reviewing Hopefully, they do not have minds made up uh, already. But here's um, there there are a couple things here. There are those who don't trust uh, this administration, especially when it comes to issues like sexual assault. Uh, But putting that aside, uh, Secretary DeVos says that those who are accused of sexual assault can be punished if there is a preponderance, and uses that word too, preponderance of evidence against them. As a result, she said the accused may not be getting due process. Now, I read one opinion, and uh, it was from someone who uh, supported what 
what the the administration is doing. They said that if you know uh, there was an accuser and accused, that all there needed to be was fifty point one percent of preponderance of evidence against the accuser, and the accuser can be kicked out of school, whatever the punishment may be. In many people's minds. Donna, that does not sound like due process. Let me just read to you some of the things that uh, they're looking for. I say they, the administration. The right to full notice of the allegations and representation by counsel, the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses and present a defense, and the chance to have the dispute overseen by an independent and impartial decision-maker, preferably based on a standard higher than a mere preponderance of evidence. Now, those things seem fair. Your response to that. Yes, thank you. Um, this is a question that we receive um, quite frequently in our work. And I think that um, going back to Title IX, um, looking at that legislation, and then also looking at the guidance and really reading it very carefully, um, I think that it does support a system that is fair and it's prompt and, and equitable um, for all parties involved. So I think that that is something we need to really remind ourselves of in in the context but of this how, conversation. How, why, do, why do you say that? I mean, if, if we compared this to a criminal court, uh, in a criminal court, someone, if they have been charged with sexual assault, uh, 12 members of a jury or a judge would have to find them guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. In this case, we're just looking sure. at... And I don't know whether that 50.1% is accurate or not, but a preponderance of evidence rather than within a shadow, without a shadow of a doubt. Right. And the preponderance of evidence standard is what you're saying. It's is it more likely than not to have occurred based on the evidence right. that's available through the investigative process. Um, and I think that... You know, I think if we back up and look at the campus process is not a criminal justice process. It is a campus disciplinary process. It is to receive reports of student misconduct, of which sexual violence is one. Um, and it's to really do everything that's in the campus power to better understand what has happened, to receive that report, to put measures in place to address a hostile environment and to ensure that students are safe through the process. Um, and so, you know, the criminal justice process is separate from and has a completely different purpose than the campus adjudication process. So campus is about discipline and hopefully education through discipline. Um, and so that preponderance of evidence standard has held up in the Supreme Court for civil matters. It's also the standard that campuses often are using for other misconduct violations. Can I interrupt you right there, sure. Dr. Hinton? That was my next question. Uh, let's make an analogy. Let's make a comparison. When a student is accused of violating rules or, uh, you know, rules of campus policy on campus, uh, how is that, uh, how does it, is, is it preponderance of evidence? against <clears throat> Well, I don't do all of the student conduct, right, so that's understand. the first piece. So I, I don't feel that I should comment on that piece. What I can say to you, though, is that uh, what my colleague just said, this is not a criminal proceeding. So because it is not a criminal proceeding, colleges generally are able to, uh, and, and we're not lawyers, right? Essentially, and we're not litigating, essentially. But it's more about an educational moment to correct um, a violation to a policy. Now, if the secretary is looking to change the way in which, uh, the ways in which colleges look at these violations, and then to bring another layer on top to make it more of a legal issue, then that's something totally different. We also have to remember that with sexual misconduct, if a person um, wants to, they can go to the through the criminal system. Right. So, you know, our systems on campuses are not the, the last um, you know, no, place that, for them to obvious. go. That's so, obvious. Yeah. But, but many people don't know that. They don't understand that what a college is doing, and many private colleges, uh, is is they're trying to write um, some some type of behavior. They are they are going through a very narrow lens, and they're looking at the processes they have on their campus mm -hmm. and their policies. They are not, a, it is not a legal system. Donna, before you answer that, let me just add that uh, the number one priority if a student has been sexually assaulted uh, is 
to get justice for that student, to make sure that student is treated if uh, there's need for counseling, any kind of help that that student needs. That, that should be, I would assume, the number one priority. But at the same time, even though a college may not be a judicial entity, the decisions made can have an impact on both students' lives for the rest of their lives. I mean, if uh, a student is expelled or, um, you know, this shows up when that person is seeking a career, seeking a job, that th there is punishment there. So you've got to get it right, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I also wanted to add that um, in that campus process, Title IX and the guidance from 2011 requires campuses to ensure that through the investigation, uh, both parties are able to submit evidence. Mm -hmm. They are both able to um, submit witnesses, yes. have advisors of choice. Those advisors can be attorneys. They can be friends. They can be faculty members. They can be advocates. Um, and they are required to receive timely and simultaneous notice of what is happening during those proceedings. Exactly. So I think some of the quotes that, that you read earlier, Scott, um, I think that there could be individual cases that have not been always handled well on individual college campuses. But when we look more broadly, the Title IX guidance requires equity for all parties throughout that process and the rights, what you do for one, you must do for the other. So people who are accused of sexual violence do have the right to have an advisor, to submit witnesses, to submit evidence, and to receive timely notice of what is happening, just as the victim should have those rights as well. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, uh, there are those since this announcement was made last week who have said that this will allow some rapists to go unpunished. Uh, does the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape believe that? I think that any dilution of the guidance and any rollback of of the systems that we've, we've been trying mm -hmm. to make such important strides in Pennsylvania and nationally, um, I think there is concern that there will be accountability lost, both accountability um, on the part of college campuses to address this issue and also accountability of, of people who are accused. Um, I think that, you know, we'd like to see us continue the progress that we've made in both prevention and in responding to reports of sexual violence. I almost get the sense, and Dr. Hinton, I don't know whether you're in a position to answer this or not, but I almost get the sense that colleges, universities, school districts are uh, somewhat confused by this. That they, that you know, they thought, okay, the dear colleague letter from uh, the Obama administration uh, in, in 2011 provided some uh, guidance here. And you, you tell me, I mean, almost get a sense <laughs> that schools are saying, okay, what now? Where do we go with this? Well, well, yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. I think, that, <laughs> I think that everyone is kind of, you know, on pins and needles. We um, kind of took a while to, to really get on the right course. And there have been several dear colleague letters throughout the uh, Obama, the previous administration. And then we have on top of that, the Violence Against Women's Act. And that was, you know, re-upped. And we have some, some wonderful moments um, that are very affirming, I think, for uh, victims of sexual misconduct or sexual assault. We're kind of wondering what's going to happen next, because some of the conversation and some of the talking points were um, around freedom of expression, around um, if everything is discrimination, then kind of nothing is. I mean, there are some moments, so we're trying to figure out where this is going to all land. Yes. Well, you kind of anticipate my next question is to uh, where do we go next with this? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. Donna, do you, do you know? Let's just stay hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think that um, the public commenting period that Secretary DeVos mentioned will be critical for people to really speak up and take that opportunity to submit comments and to yes. review yes. the Title IX guidance and to share their perspectives about what is working, what is working well, where are the gaps, how can we bridge those. Um, I would caution us against you know, throwing out the entire system 
um, let's look at what's working and let's look at strengthening that system. I think, again, I mentioned earlier, the the vibrance of student activism is very real in this country. It's very real in Pennsylvania. Yes, and um, the partners that they have found on college campuses are are really helping us to propel forward. Regardless of whether this guidance gets rescinded, Title IX remains in effect since 1972. Yes. Um, so campuses are still going to be obligated to uphold that law and to do everything in their power to make sure that their campuses are safe and free from sexual violence um, and making sure that all student rights are honored. One, one final quick question. Um, your your colleague uh, uh, Kristen Hauser has been on our program many times and one of the things we talk about is uh, a victim's reluctance to come forward sure will there be people who will not come forward after this saying you know what it's it's difficult as it is that I have to go through all this um, you know I, they're gonna bring up they may bring up that I was drinking or that my sexual past or even on the, in the college setting they may mm -hmm. do that and you know if there is I don't know a, a bigger barrier for uh, an accuser to prove those charges or have believe what they they say will there be people who say you know what it's just not worth it yeah thank you for that question I think that you know the latest statistics show that over 80% of students never make a formal report right. to their college campuses. So I think we need to understand when reports do happen, we need to understand those in the context of that vast underreporting. And not only on college campuses, sexual assault is a vastly underreported crime um, through the criminal justice system as well. And I think there are very real barriers that victims face. Um, it can be anything from fear that they won't be believed, fear of further violence and harassment, um, not understanding that what happened to them was actually a form of sexual violence and should be addressed. Um, also fear of just needing to stay on track and needing to get through their day. So there are many, many reasons why a victim will not come forward and talk about what happened to them. Um, and so I think that any message that we're sending you know, that, that could possibly dilute those experiences or minimize those experiences um, will send us even further backwards. Hmm. I want to thank our guests for being with us today, Dr. Amenta Hinton of Elizabethtown College Office of Equity in Title IX, and Donna Greco, Policy Director of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. We are in the midst of WITF's fall fundraising campaign coming to you a little bit earlier this year in uh, mid-September. And I'm joined by uh, WITF's capital correspondent, or I guess you're her capital bureau chief, Katie Meyer. Katie, how are you today? I'm good. Here, let me get this. Off. There you go. There, <laughs> there you go. go. <laughs> I got so many buttons here that I'm pushing. Scott that can't keep track of all the buttons. I, I, I but really can't. I really can't. Well, it's okay. We'll get through it. Um, I'm good, Scott. Um I've been, you know, I'm in the midst of budget coverage. We're doing a lot of kind of round-the-clock work on that. I might be into work this weekend as well. So, you know what that means? We need support from <laughs> listeners in order to fund this reporting, all of our reporting, not just mine. Marie Cusick, who was just on her reporting around the state, her, you know, bills to get around the state. Emily Previty has the same situation. She travels a lot to get reports from people where they live uh, and to, you know, do reports on things that impact specific communities. So all of us, all of us need your support no matter what we're doing. Well, you know, what you're talking about uh, is, is so important. Uh, one of the things that we do know across the country is that uh, very often uh, Americans don't know what's going on at the state capitol. I mean, they, you know, they may hear the headlines. They may hear the big stories about when a budget passes or when there is a budget impasse. But 
they often don't hear the whys or get that insight into why something is happening or the context. And that's what you do, Katie, and that's what we try to do here at WITF all the time is to provide that context. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me an example of something that behind the scenes you're reporting that hasn't been reported a whole lot. Well, I think one of the I think best ways of um, you know spotlighting the reporting that we're doing is just telling about like the process, what it takes to like get those stories. So you know there are a bunch of reporters in the Capitol in the bureau covering the budget day in and day out, but um, there aren't as many of them as there used to be. And nowhere near as many. Nowhere near as many. It's dwindled a lot, and we actually have a pretty robust staff. So anyway, I think just I mean we stake out offices, we sit there, we are in the place where things are happening. And that's an important thing that is often not in journalism these days. So I think it's just, I mean, you know, sitting outside an office where lawmakers are trying to have a secret meeting and we figured out where they were and we went down there. Those are things that like you couldn't do if you weren't in the place where you're reporting. So and I have to say, if you like that stuff, if you enjoy that I'm in the Capitol, that we're bringing you these daily ins and outs of very complicated budget negotiations in a state that hasn't passed a real budget in a while, um, then donate, you know, give us uh, your support. Go to WITF.org. Call us at 1-800-233-9483. Again, cannot stress this enough. Your support is what makes this possible. It really does. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, and I, I hope we don't have to remind people of this, but uh, when you're talking about state budgets, when you're talking about uh, Pennsylvania's energy economy that uh, Marie Cusick covers with State Impact Pennsylvania or Keystone Crossroads, the challenges facing cities that uh, Emily Previty covers, uh, these are all things that have an impact on your life on your family's lives. And it's very important. I mean, a lot of times we lose sight of those things. And at WITF, we're dedicated. That is part of our mission of bringing you that information. And if you do appreciate it, if you do find that kind of information, the kind of information news that you get from WITF news, or even here on Smart Talk, we talk about, you know, so many issues. <laughs> so many. I mean, just just talked about uh, something that so many Americans have been talking about over the past week, sexual assault on campus and whether uh, these Title IX rules are actually being rolled back, whether campuses will be more dangerous. Mm -hmm. I, but I also try to bring some variety. We have Ben Gallagher, who will be performing at the York Fair, a local country music uh, star coming up, uh, you know, will be performing at the York Fair tomorrow night. So we try to bring some, some um, variety to, to the program as well. Yeah, and I think these these are programs that really are unique to public radio. You get nuanced, you know, varied, calm discussions on issues that are affecting you or on like cultural things from your area that you might not know about. These are things that you really, I mean, you can't get anywhere else. Mm. And, you know, we now is a good time to donate, by the way. We have a sustaining member uh, matching gift challenge. Um, so if you give, you know, $5 a month, $10 a month, month, $20 a month. You do that recurring donation. You could do a dollar a day. Any of those, you, your pledge is going to get matched. And so it, you get twice the impact, twice that bang for your buck. And uh, you really do go a long way to helping us out. So again, 1-800-233-9483 or online, WITF.org. Again, these are unique programs, and we really do rely on your support to get them made. Katie, thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you in a few minutes. We'll talk in a few minutes. Bye. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Many musicians dream of making a living out of their music, recording with a big-name record label, and scoring a hit song that makes the charts. Cumberland County's Ben Gallagher has done all those things, with the exception of Get the Big Hit, and that may be only because he just signed with Sony Music Nashville and has released his first EP. Aspiring country music star Ben Gallagher opens for Leonard Skinner at the York Fair tomorrow night, and he joins us on the line. Ben, how are you? Scott, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Are you in Nashville? I am. You're, you're still in Nashville. So when yep, you're making I'm the trip... Up. I'm yeah. heading up PA bound here in a couple hours at Road 81. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, well, I'm hoping that uh, you build in some time for a few delays here and there on 81. You've made that trip many times, I'm sure, coming coming from Nashville. So oh, talk, I know it all too well. Well, talk about uh, we'll, we'll start with talking about uh, appearing at the York Fair. Uh, I mean, in, in, and opening for Leonard Skinner. You know, that has to be one of your dreams come true, I would imagine. Golly, it's, it really is like a pinch me moment. We've been out with him a couple times, and every time it's like, holy cow. I mean, I grew up listening to Skinner. I mean, they're rock legends. Um, so it's, and especially at the York Fair. So this is no kidding. I've, so I've always wanted to play at the York Fair. Uh, I grew up going there as a kid. <clears throat> I seen, uh, I saw Eric Church and Justin Moore and a bunch of other um, of my inspirations there, got my pictures with them and everything. So it's cool to be on this side and be able to play on the on those same stages. So, you know, growing up in central Pennsylvania, when you signed your record deal uh, last month, uh, one of the things that they said in the news release, uh, uh, Sony Nashville said that, uh, you know, Ben writes songs, because I should mention that, that you're not only a performer, but you write, that's what you do during the day, and also, uh, you know, play guitar, but that, that Ben writes songs or likes music that talk about his central uh, Pennsylvania uh, roots. Now, most people don't think of central Pennsylvania is a hotbed for country music, other than listening to country music. So talk about what your motivation is, what mo- what uh, kind of uh, provides that motivation for you, that inspiration for you when you're writing songs. Yeah, I mean, it re- it's just real things, and country music has always been about stories, and um, just real things, and, and, then, and sometimes that's lifestyle. I mean, some people have said, man, you're from you know, you're from central Pennsylvania and you sing country music. Well, it's not, it's not where, it's not if it's, if you were, you know, raised on a farm or not, you know, country is, it's not just, um, you know, geographic, it's lifestyle, it's character, it's values, all of those things. That to me personally, that's, that's all goes into country. Um, and on the songwriting front, I mean, some of them I'll go in to write, and I may not necessarily be going through what I'm writing about that day, but I'll try to put myself in those shoes or somebody and try to, man, if somebody's going through this, maybe they'll, maybe the song will be able to help them, you know? And that's really what's going through my head, and it just goes back to just real things and real people. Now, you graduated from uh, Cedar Cliff High School, went to Penn State, but transferred to Belmont University in Tennessee, uh, and you've know, had, had a lot of support here in central Pennsylvania. But what influenced? I, I know that uh, you really like 90s country, but what influenced you as you were growing up? Uh, well, I started, so I started playing off uh, Campbell's soup cans when I was a kid with pencils. <laughs> I, uh, I was a drummer, I, I, I guess. I started off that way, and, and then my folks got me a drum set. Um, I may have drove them and my brothers crazy. I think night, it sounds that way, yeah. On, banging on the drums in the basement. You can hear them in the whole house. <laughs> um, and then uh, around age five or six, I switched over to guitar, and uh, I just fell in love with it. And um, I, it just fit me so well. And... It's almost like I didn't even have a choice with music. I was just I was going to do it, um, and uh, I'm just extremely blessed, and I've had so much support along the way. And in country, I that that fit me too. I mean, that's all I grew up listening to, and I've just have grown from an early age a huge passion for country music and the stories they tell. You know, something that uh, you said a little while ago, Ben, is so true. For those who aren't familiar with country music or haven't listened in the last 10 or 20 years, uh, you're right. You don't have to be talking about growing up on a farm, uh, you know, with, with a pickup truck. The One of the, the real consistent parts of country music or something that you notice all the time is the storytelling, just as you mentioned. And so it sounds as if that's what you're trying to do with your music is tell a story. Exactly. Yeah, and and my and then that's my goal is to have a positive impact, you know, on 
somebody's life through the through my music, which is through the stories. And maybe and maybe when they listen to it, they find a little piece of the song. Or, oh wow, that's I've I've gone through that. Or hey, I believe in that too. Hey, that's me. That's just like me. So you've been traveling around the country for some time now, but uh, you you signed the record deal with uh, Sony Nashville, and uh, and for again those not familiar, all you got to do is hear that name. I mean, this is a, a big record company. Uh, do you are there any plans for uh, a single to be released? So yeah, we're still uh, we're still in the planning phase with all that, but that's definitely been in conversations right now. Um, so we, the EP was released in August, um, and five songs and, and we're also going to kind of just see what happens and see if one song in particular raised its hand and, um, you know, and use that as well before we decide on, um, on the single. So it's been unbelievably exciting to finally have music out. Um, I've been writing for the last several years um, for this project and um, trying to pick just five songs for the EP was extremely difficult. You get attached to songs, especially when I'm playing them live every weekend and I'm seeing fans react and then I can only pick five. So then some songs aren't, you know, they're not obviously not going to be able to make it on this round, but um, to finally have some music out there, is just I'm thrilled about them. Did you write these five songs? Uh, I wrote all of them. No, I wrote all but two on this round. Yeah. Okay. Against the World is the name of the EP. Did you uh, write Against the World? I did write that one. Yep. Let's that's listen to been, that. That's been the focus track so far. Let me let me play a little bit of that. This is Ben Gallagher. The EP is titled uh, Against the World. I'm scared we're gonna chase it. Let's make that rule scared we're gonna break it. Let's make that chance scared we're gonna take it. Let's make the future scared we're about to face it. Let's chase that restless down. Let's land in a big dream town. Let's don't settle for anything less than some moments we'll never forget. When they say you don't jump, let's dive head first. All right, so Ben, what's that story about? Or excuse me, that song about? That's just that song is about young love and just taking on and being able to take on anything and having that mindset. Um, and when I say young love, I mean that's when we were writing it. That's what we were thinking. But it doesn't have to be young love. It can be any age, really. You know, and however you know, long the two have been in love, it's just a hey. We got you and me. We got us together. We can make it through anything. We can. We can. We can do it all. Ben Gallagher opens for Leonard Skinner at the York Fair tomorrow night. Ben, uh, we've been watching your career, and we'll continue to watch your career. And uh, good luck with the the EP and uh, and and your career. Thanks for being with us today, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Of the 74.5 million children in the United States, an estimated 17.1 million have or have had a mental health disorder, more than the number of children with cancer, diabetes, and AIDS combined. Half of all mental illness occurs before the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. In spite of the magnitude of the problem, lack of awareness, and entrenched stigma keep the majority of these young people from getting help. Children and mental illness is the focus of the next Health Smart on WITF-TV tomorrow night at 8. Host producer Kira McGuire joins us. Kira, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. i got to tell you, those statistics really jump out at you. And when you say awareness, that is something that, uh, I don't know, we just don't seem to want to 
admit that th- th- those number of children uh, may have or had a mental health disorder, and part of that plays into stigma. Right, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, 20%, 20% of, of kids have or will have a mental illness, um, as you mentioned, and, and that's, yeah, it's, it's alarming, and I think it's still the fear of a label. It's fear of having your child um, being viewed as different in some way um, that prevents a lot of parents from, from seeking treatment if they think there might be a need. So tell me about the program. So this program, um, you know, we saw those statistics and it just felt like an important topic. Um, we do focus primarily on the stigma portion um, of, of this, this issue and, and trying to just view mental illness as part of our health, you know, part of our wellness. It, there's no reason that mental illness shouldn't be viewed as any other chronic condition like asthma or diabetes and, um, and just kind of, um, you know, putting this out there and talking about it, I think, will combat some of that stigma, hopefully, eventually. You know, whenever we have a conversation about one of your healths, you're going to anticipate my question. <laughs> what, what did you learn? You know, I think what I learned was was what we've been talking about. It's that this is um, so common. Mental illness is common in children um, and that the stigma does still exist. And, um, you know, if untreated, mental illness leaves kids at risk for, you know, coping mechanisms, negative coping mechanisms such as alcohol and drugs, um, dropping out of school, and um, winding up in the juvenile justice system. So I think after talking to experts and parents, um, the thing that I learned is it's important to just go and see if you think there might be something um, that could be addressed in your child. Just just go and find out because, um, you know, untreated, it, it leads to negative things down the road. You mentioned that you talked to parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of stories did you hear from parents? Um, You know, we focused on a story... yeah, for a, a child that, that lost, dealt with, with some mental health issues um, as a rel- result of loss. Um, and I think that's one of the confusing things about mental illness is, is how it comes about. You know, it can, it can be partly um, genetic. It can be partly um, a result of something that happens in your environment. So, so I think that's confusing as well. But we, but we followed their story and kind of talked to them about, um, about their approach to what was going on. And I think it's a good story for people to hear um, just that encourages you to go and find out. Uh, I agree 100 percent. I mean, I, I think it's it's one of those one of those illnesses in this country that we don't talk enough about just because of stigma. But the, the program is Health Smart Children and Mental Illness. Uh, it comes up tomorrow night at uh, eight o'clock on uh, WITF TV. Kira McGuire, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And I'll tell you, I, I, I've been very fortunate to, today to have so many staff members stopping in and talking to us. Not only Kira, but Katie Meyer is, is with us too. And uh, uh, Katie's not talking about mental illness. But she's talking about, uh, but you know, Katie, fiscal uh, illness. Fiscal illness. <laughs> <laughs> you're, I think you're referring to the state, and I don't know why to yeah. Yes, but, specifically. Uh, yeah, Kira, thank you very much. Uh, but I, I want to point out, and I, it's probably obvious for those who have listened for over the last hour, that uh, today's program is a good example of the kind of variety that, that we have on Smart Talk on a daily basis. I mean, we went from talking about the sexual assault in Title IX on college campuses, talking to an aspiring country music star who's, who's local, and then talking to Kira McGuire about a program that is so important, children and mental illness. That kind of variety, Katie, I, I, I think our, our audience appreciate it. We know you enjoy that. I hear that all the time. You know, when people talk about smart talk, they talk about WITF. They say, we like the variety. We like the different stories that we hear on uh, smart talk and WITF. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the great things about public radio is we have the agency, we have, you know, really the will to put together all these perspectives to try to give you as balanced a view of, you know, your community as we possibly can. And of course, I I think about things through the lens of politics a lot where I'm saying, okay, is this balanced? Did I get all the perspectives in? Am I presenting this in a fair, reasonable, nuanced way? And all of these things are really important. And luckily, I mean, I feel very fortunate that we're given the time and we're given the resources here at WITF to do these things, to you know, support a basically that level of reporting. It is really important, and I think it is increasingly rare. And if you appreciate that. If you would like to continue getting that level of reporting of, you know, analysis about the state budget or about what, you know, energy policy means, you know, in your 
hometown, for instance, or, uh, you know, about urban blight, things like that. My reporting, Marie Cusick's reporting, Emily Previty's reporting, all of that reporting is not possible without your support. So call 1-800-233-9483 or go online to WITF.org if you would like to make a contribution. Any amount is good. Um, $5 a month, $10 a month. $40 a month, a dollar a day, any amount that you would like to contribute. We have a matching gift for any sustaining member. So if you give on a recurring basis month by month, your gift will be matched. That is a really good opportunity. Um, And again, we're getting towards our goal. We have over $46,000 to make by Friday. Um, We do have donations coming in this hour. We want to thank Randy in Acme. Bernard in Newville, thank you. We would like to hear from more people, um, you know, as this hour goes on and through the rest of the next couple of days. Because as I said, you know, your support just it makes a world of difference in what we can do, uh, the resources that we have at this station. And Smart Talk listeners, I have to give you a little pep talk from time to time. Come through during this hour and show your appreciation for this program and all the other programs and news on uh, WITF by going to WITF. Org or calling 1-800-233-9483. We have our very nice volunteers back there waiting for us, and they're, they're waiting for the phones to ring. But, Katie, I have to you know say that uh, I always enjoy having you on the program. Because, I enjoy being on the program. Well, we have a nice conversation always, but you provide so much insight into what is happening at the state capitol, and you do it in a way that uh, is... You know, it's it's easy for people to understand, oh, okay, so that's why they're doing it. And that's what all our journalists here at uh, WITF do. And uh, But we do need your support. On a regular basis, we come to you like four times a year asking you for your financial support. And uh, this is one of those times. Uh, if you want to see this kind of programming continue, expand, we're always looking for new ways to bring you more information. Go to WITF.org or call 1-800-233-9483. So, Katie, what are you looking at today? Oh, well, it's all budget all the all time right now. The, the, house, time. the House is in session. We're waiting on them to vote on a, on a bill apparently that they're considering exclusively now from a conservative caucus. So I'm just going to be there waiting outside offices, <laughs> trying to get people to talk to me. And luckily, you know, WITF has the wherewithal to put me there. So I'm very grateful for that. And I'm grateful to all of you for supporting. If you haven't yet, please call. Katie. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to hear from a couple of the producers of uh, the Vietnam War series coming up this Sunday on WITF. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.